This episode is dedicated to Antonija for becoming our newest Southpaw supporter and helping to make this project possible. This is Sam. This is Jason. And this is Fight Wait. Study. We just had UFC 270 this Saturday, and I'm here with Coach Jason again to break down the main and co-main events, along with previewing Jack Hermanson versus Sean Strickland. But first, let's go over the results. In the main event, we had Francis Ngannou defeating Cyril Gaon by unanimous decision to unify the heavyweight title. In the co-main event, we had Davis and Figueredo beating Brandon Moreno by unanimous decision to regain the flyweight title. This was their third fight, now tied at one apiece and one draw. I hope they don't run it back again immediately because we've now seen them fight three times in a row and other fighters need a shot at the title like Alejandre Pantoja and Askar Askarov. Then you had Michael Pereira beating Andre Filo by unanimous decision. Saeed Nurmagomedov beat Cody Stamen by guillotine choke in round one. Michael Morales beat Trevin Giles by TKO in round one. Victor Henry beat Hani Barcelos by unanimous decision. Jack Della Maddalena beat Pete Rodriguez by TKO in round one. Tony Gravely beat Simon Oliveira by unanimous decision. Matt Frivola beat Gennaro Valdez by TKO round one. Vanessa Demopoulos beat Silvana Gomez-Juarez by armbar in round one after getting dropped by a punch. And Jasmine Jazudavicius beat Kay Hansen by unanimous decision. First, let's go over the main event. Francis Ngannou versus Cyril Gone. Let's talk about the winner, Ngannou. Jason, what did you like about his performance and what did you wish you saw more of from him in this fight? Uh, what I liked about uh, Francis's performance is, and this was the key takeaway I think of the entire fight, is that uh, you know neither neither fighter had outstanding cardio uh, because they're they're a bit they're they're heavyweights and you don't necessarily see that. But um, you know Ngannou performed much better through fatigue, and th- that fatigue may have shown more on Francis because of the way he fights. But in terms of performance and pushing through, I think he wore it much better than Gon did. And he found big takedowns and positional improvements that require significant energy spend, you know, in those championship rounds. It was the fatigue that, that sort of had gone all over the place and unable to scramble after that leg lock, lock attempt, where he almost gave up his back and then Francis eventually got top position. I mean, it, and it, you, you heard the, the narrative was, how tired Francis looked, but it was so obvious that that Gon was starting to fatigue, and I saw it in the third. But it took it took DC and Rogan a fucking fifth round to notice it. And if it it takes some really obvious shit for DC and Rogan to notice something, <laughs> you know, come off the agreed corporate narrative. So you know, I, the ability to work through fatigue is is a toughness thing, and it you it, also a discipline thing. And like coaching 
putting you in in fatigued moments in in working through technique. I don't think you're going to see Francis running a marathon ever, but if you if you can get him staying disciplined when he's tired, which I think he did exceptionally well, um, I think you're going to see a guy that's able to, to hold on to that title for a while. I think I messaged you during the fight, but he reminds me of guys I've sparred with in whether it's Muay Thai or grappling or even when I used to wrestle in high school. Because sometimes you, you see some, somebody mouth breathing and it's a tell, right? But it's actually a deceptive tell because I've seen people who go to mouth breathing very early and then they're able to keep trucking, right? So sometimes you're like, oh, they're breathing through their mouth. Now they're tired, right? And it's just like, yeah, they got tired enough to breathe through their mouth, but somehow even breathing through their mouth, they're able to go on for a long time. Whereas, you know, somebody like me or somebody else, they might start mouth breathing later, but then just gas out immediately right after that, right? So I think people read too much into mouth breathing sometimes. I, I think that I think that's a great observation because like Francis is able, he may not be able to get back to a, a hundred miles an hour after round one, but like he'll redline it and stay at eighty five if he fucking has to because he, he's he's tough he's tough, and and that takes some discipline and a bit of a you know a pain tolerance. Like it's not very comfortable being being that that physically fatigued. So like if you can dial it in and be disciplined, but. And the, the things that he was doing that were outside of like decapitating other human beings with punches um, were big energy spans, like the wrestling he went to. And because he is, it's those skills are not his immediate discipline or his first and second discipline. Um, he goes to them in, in a state of fatigue. That means like he was well coached and he had been working them and adding them to his toolkit. Now let's talk about gone. You already mentioned some of the things already, but what did you like about his performance and what do you think he needs to work on? What I did like is gone is really smooth on his feet. Um, he was throwing, throwing some really good stuff um, and he wasn't really that hittable, especially early in the fight. Um, and he mixed in some wrestling attacks, some single leg entries, uh, sort of a duck under peak out in that one, that one position. And he looked to be and was the athlete we believed him to be. Um, at the heavyweight division, married with uh, or combined with like significant tech technical acumen, so he looked like a good, skilled, athletic heavyweight. When that you know we're used to guys that can that can punch really hard and that are big, and um, he he came in with sort of uh, a smoothness that you don't necessarily see uh, typically in the heavyweight division. What I what I what I didn't like was um, cardio became a bit of an issue, and he his decision making a little bit later in the fight was um, I, I didn't think it was as bad as the commentary made it out to be, but um, because they failing to consider how tired he was is the difference in between like yeah I'll go ahead and stand up from this position and not give up top position to. Like, holy shit, I'm trying to move my leg, but I just can't because I've been fighting Francis Ngannou for 22 minutes. And that's really fucking hard. And maybe you guys could understand, especially if, like, uh, if you've been a heavyweight UFC fighter like DC has. His inability to recognize or empathize in that moment is just fucking bizarre to me. So 
you know, I, you know me, I got to take my jabs at UFC commentary because it, it is what it is. And what it is, is, is shit most of the time. Well, he's anti-worker, right? He's very much company man. So he has a lot of empathy for Dana White and the company, but not so much for the fighters. Yeah, Dana White, the same guy who wouldn't put the belt around Francis after the fight. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, the UFC definitely wanted Gone to win. No, for sure. No doubt. No doubt. Uh, but there were, there were a ton of, uh, of good things I saw from Gone, who, but that was his 11th, U, or 11th MMA fight. And that's, that's not a lot of time in there. Um, and then there's, there's some obvious holes, but it's, it's real easy to, to Monday morning quarterback, um, especially heavyweights, um, from the ground position when they're fatigued. So, uh, I mean, and that's not always the most fair, but you know me, I'm typically hypercritical. So if I'm trying to give someone the benefit of the doubt, it's because I think the, the commentary or the, the, um, as the narrative unfolds on MMA Twitter, you know, it's usually a little bit harsher than it needs to be. Yeah. I mean, I think our fans are educated enough to know when we're talking about a heavyweight fight, the bar for like what's expected or the technical acumen drops by a lot, right? It's not the same expectations we have for uh, Figueredo and Moreno, right? No, not at all. Not at all. Like the, the, you don't, don't give me like punch volume stats from my, from my heavyweight, right? <laughs> They're never going to keep up with Max Holloway, okay? <laughs> no, you're just going to be disappointed, right? Yeah. So some context is everything. Yeah. Look, I wasn't expecting it to look great on the ground. And I think we both had a different idea of what the fight would look like. Actually, I think everybody had a different idea. They thought it was going to be kind of a point game by gone, or it was going to be Francis with a KO. Nobody was expecting it to be really decided by grappling. But with that said, I'm not going to judge too harshly about the grappling, but I do want to talk about the striking aspect for Gone because I was expecting at least a little bit better from him. He was doing the typical like things that he throws, but what I wish I saw more of or was surprised I didn't see were body kicks because he kept switching to Southpaw to have that open stance matchup, right? But then instead, he would just throw these flicking calf kicks with his lead leg which is cool, but then the left body kick, that's the whole point, right? Especially as a kicker. You throw that left body kick or you throw a left straight. He threw a bunch of wheel kicks and he threw some great back kicks. I don't think he threw one left body kick from Southpaw. You know, I don't know if Francis Ngannou would have blocked them, but show me that he would have blocked them and then you're like, I'm not going to do this anymore. Don't throw none of those. So I think that was one thing I was disappointed in. And I think that would have paid dividends as the fight progressed in hurting and taking away from Ngannou's win. I think you have to invest into poking holes in, in Francis Ngannou's gas tank and those kicks to the body. Um, in the first round, he threw a couple, right? Gone through a couple. And I think I even, I even texted you that at first glance, I thought uh, Gone won the first two rounds. And to me at the, t- at the time, it seemed obvious. You know, Francis missed big a few times and gone, finished round one with a really nice front kick to the body. Um, and, and he hadn't been decapitated, right? So you start to give credit for not, getting, for not getting murdered in that first round. And also the commentary, as per usual, was pretty shitty and misleading. And uh, uh, Rogan and DC with their ignorant fuckery and UFC glad handing, you have to, you have to like, untether yourself from that sort of influence. But Watching um, Gone end the round with that kick, 
I, I registered that as, oh shit, that's going to be a problem. And I gave what is a relatively close round to gone at, uh, at, at first glance. Then watching it again, I think uh, Francis did enough to win that round. Um, but, I, but I think you're right. Investing into those body shots um, really would have paid some dividends in the later round. And I, I'm not sure what, uh, what sort of dissuaded him uh, from continuing to do so. I don't know if it was if Francis was, was cutting him off okay or he wanted to fight some more on the back foot. But um, I thought it was a, a tragic miscalculation that, that I would have liked to see more of. And on top of what you mentioned about the cardio and the grit and just basically rising to perform in those big moments that Nganu showed, I think it was also a tale of two different corners. I think Eric Nixick just did a much better job with Nganu than Gon's corner. And Nganu did a great job listening. I felt like for the most part, Gon was on his own trying to just figure it out. And especially the last round, his corner was like, really excited, panicked, like basically telling Gon he had to go out there and finish the fight, otherwise he was going to lose, which then explains why he went for the heel hook because he probably thought, oh, I don't know what the scores are. I might be losing. I have to finish him, right? And even with that said, you sent me a clip where even when he was setting that up, he didn't really fall back for that leg lock and Gon actually swept him. So that's why he ended up on his back anyway. Uh, but why he even put himself in that position, because I think he was so desperate going into uh, the last round, whereas Eric Nixick just had Nganu so calm, and you could just see the two of them trusted each other, and Nixick just had complete faith that Nganu was going to go out there and win, and he told him, these are the things you needed to do, and then Nganu went out there and did it. Whereas I think with Gon's corner, I don't think he gave him any technical advice as far as like what I can tell from the translation. It was a lot of like, you know, you have to go out there and win. It is impossible for you to lose this fight, right? And so I think that was another big difference was uh, the teamwork of Nganu and his team versus Gone and his team. Francis's corner was was outstanding. Nixick did, a, did an excellent job with his technical and strategic advice and his communication and delivery was outstanding. And at the same time, he gave, um, you know, the, the extra 15 seconds or 20 seconds to Dewey Cooper. And his messaging was very cohesive with, uh, with Eric Nixix. And how many times do you hear in the corner someone give you one thing and the other person? 80% of the time. <laughs> right. It's disjointed. And the other guy who gets like the 15 seconds, literally the 15 seconds of fame, just wants to say something either clever and then he, his energy level comes up and he's overly hyped. And it's like, dude, just fucking relax and communicate and communicate something technical um, in real time so that the, the fight, the fighter and the fight can unfold as you hope it, it should and as you have worked it, rehearsed it, trained it, um, and how you see it happening in real time. And uh, I thought Nixick and Dewey Cooper did it well as as anybody. I mean, they didn't go off the charts in terms of like technical strategy because they didn't have to. They worked with within Francis's ability. They stayed simple, somewhat formulaic. Um, and the um, the messaging was uh, was what was needed. And like credit to Francis for listening to his coaches. And that is that is in that is trust 
And that is like that time spent in having success and building that, that rapport and trust that takes some time to develop. A note to our loyal listeners, if you love the Southpaw Project, please support us and help us get paid for our labor by financially supporting us on Patreon. This will give you access to exclusive bonus content, as well as our private chat group on Discord. Show your Southpaw solidarity by supporting us at patreon.com slash southpawpod. Yeah, I think Gon's coach, who used to be Angana's coach, his name is Fernand Lopez. And I think he made the fight too much about himself, too. It became a fight about him versus Angano as well. So I think he became a worse coach for that. Normally, he's a lot better than this. But I think he got so emotionally invested because of that personal aspect that he couldn't coach even to his limit, which actually ended up hurting Gon. And Gon went out there and just like made some stuff up, which... You know, as a rookie fighter, you don't want them to do that. And he had a chance to win it, and then he lost the fight. So, and I and I can relate to to Fernand getting like a little bit like overly emotionally involved. Like that will happen from time to time, but that usually happens not when the UFC decides to make up a fucking interim title for your guy. Like at that point, maybe you get to say, "Hey, my guy's being taken care of." I don't know what his contract is, but he's an interim champ. Um, when when it, it wasn't necessarily necessarily deserving of an interim title because Francis hadn't been out that long. So if they're taking steps to make sure your guy already gets gold around his waist, maybe you understand that some strings have been pulled for your guy and that he's in a, a favored or advantageous position based on Dana White and his douchebaggery. And, uh, <laughs> and relax and try to be, right? Try to be the most advantageous for your fighter in the moment rather than making it about you. But humans do as humans do, and humans do stupid shit. So, you know. Moving on, let's talk about Davis and Figueredo versus Brandon Moreno. I think we were both shocked by the adjustments Figueredo made, as well as his improved gas tank. He showed up even a pound under the championship weight limit. And he looked visibly skinnier than he normally does, which is actually a good thing because he normally has a terrible weight cut, right? So let's talk about that, Jason. What did you like about Figueredo's performance and what did you think he was lacking in this fight? Um, gas tank was outstanding. Um, some adjustments, his ability to fight a little more disciplined, while at the same time still being his aggressive self. And and let's say let's say this real real quick. You know, I digress, we'll go back. But remember when Dana White traded away Demetrius Johnson and wanted to erase the entirety of the fucking flyweight division? Like, can you imagine? Like missing out on this trilogy between between Figueroa and Moreno. This is MMA's Gotti versus Ward. Gotti Ward, exactly. Like that's what that's what Jess and I were saying as we were watching it. That this is this is the, that kind of trilogy that um, helps shape the sport. And you know, I, everything with me is an eventual fuck Dana White moment. But imagine. Like, what I don't understand is how like all the right wing sure dog incels still tout Dana White as some sort of fucking promotional genius <laughs> when he was willing to wash the world of 125 pound fighters because uh, no one no one cares. Well, that's because you're fucking dumb and you don't know what you're watching. So like watching this fight, I mean. I know you don't want to see a fourth in a row, but like I get that there are some other guys that need, need some attention. I, I want to see a fourth in a row, just not immediately. 
I need a break. In <laughs> right. But it was it was an outstanding fight, and credit to Figueroa for what he was able to do in tightening things up. Um, you know, and who knows? I, I I'd like to be a fly on the wall um, and watch his work with Cejudo and company. But sometimes just getting like a singular voice and adding some greater attention to detail, um, being more dialed in with a more focused approach, it's it's really necessary at the championship level, especially when you're fighting someone a few years younger than you that is continuing like Moreno, who is continually uh, improving at a, at a very rapid rate. And he even looked better than he did last time. He just had some missteps where he, he lost some rounds that he was winning late. And you know, if it was a nice jab that he landed that Figueroa just sort of ran through. And then it blasted him with that right hand. And how many times does, does Moreno eat a great shot fighting like he's got a fucking football helmet on? He's got a, he got a great chin. And... um. Just a matter of some things unfolding a little bit differently, and that fight goes either way. I hear some people call it a robbery. I had touted Brandon Moreno as like one of the pound for pound best, and that thought he would win that fight. So you know me, like I, I was pulling for a decision, but I was fairly sure the way. And look, you can go by what is the the criteria, and you can also go by historically how judges score fights to know. I I, I figured Figgy was going to win it. Yeah, same here. Right, I didn't. I didn't have a problem with it. I wouldn't have had a problem either way, but I just thought Figueroa did enough to win. So do I. And it's 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 real easy to sort of quantify knockdowns, and he was able to do that twice. And yes, one was off a kick where he was off balance, and it wasn't that big of a deal. But like when when that happens in a close round, as a as a coach who's been in the corner of some some marquee guys, like. I check the the loss column for that round, and you know I, I keep it moving. So you know, that that's how I would figure it if I were in the corner, and I would be I would be real concerned come that fifth, and I would have, you know, fingers crossed that we were able, were able to push a little more of a pace and separate ourselves. But goddamn, Figgy wouldn't budge. He wouldn't budge, man. <laughs> Fight ready is a really dangerous camp like you go there even for one camp and they will come up with a game plan for you so i'm really impressed with cejudo and team over there they were able to do really structured like kind of very detailed game planning and get fighters to execute or damn near execute like even with riley zhang she lost but you saw the game plan that they had created and she almost nailed it so she almost could have won but you saw the blueprint for how they were gonna win right so that is an impressive team for me, even though Henry Cejudo is super cringe. He has a mind for this stuff, and so does his team. Yeah, absolutely. Whenever you can have like technique meet um, endurance, when technique can meet uh, the cardio requirements for, for MMA combined with strategy and, and, and that kind of um, strategic vision, you get what you get out of that camp, and at the when you're when you're preparing for a championship fight, uh, it uh, they say football is a game of inches. Well, um, MMA is a game of centimeters. I mean, mi- millimeters. You are like punches that slide off the side of your head, and punches that hit you in the temple are just a few a, like a half an inch off. And so, make no mistake, uh, cardio and conditioning are what allow someone to implement those strategies. Um, in game plans and stay disciplined to them because when when you are gassed when you are super fatigued 
99 times out of 100, all fucking bets are off. Like you're on autopilot and like shit just goes to total disarray. When you can, when you can really dial in um, your, your conditioning, you can adhere to technique and game plan and whatever protocol, protocol you've put forth and implemented to, to try to mitigate like, the strengths of the, the, uh, the task at hand. Conditioning is incredibly important, and so many people piss away their conditioning with bad weight cuts. So it's not just camp um, training. It's not just camp sparring. It's not just camp strategy. It is marrying the different the it is marrying the different um, aspects of a training camp and managing that camp in its entirety, from strength and conditioning to to sparring to coming out healthy, managing injury, managing weight. And I think if you approach it from like a, a amateur wrestling perspective, which I think the Cejudo does, then add the, the advancements that have taken place in mixed martial arts. Well, I think that camp is going to be a camp you reckon with for a while. And I'm going to think, I think you're going to see a lot of uh, some really good fighters decide to do their, their championship camp when they get to that level with, uh, with that team. Now let's talk about Moreno. What did you like about his performance and what do you think was off about his performance where he got, to your point, hit with some good shots, got dropped, and got the hell kicked out of his legs? Well, the beauty of it is Brandon Moreno loves fighting win or lose. He loves it. He's enjoying himself in there. He enjoys himself when he gets his legs kicked out. He enjoys himself when he gets dropped. He enjoys himself when he's wrestling and hitting a nice body lock. He enjoys enjoys every part of it. He's having fun in there. Um, uh, at some points I thought maybe he was a little bit too loose and needed to, to right his ship and be a little bit tighter at times, um, where I, it looks good that you're loose and you're aggressive, but it doesn't look good when you're getting like dropped with lo- low leg kicks and you look like you're spitting all over the place and off balance. Um, and some of the times that those happened were right after he just had a really nice sequence, whether it's a, a combination or setting some stuff up or have, having good boxing defense. And um, uh, Figueredo would would throw off of that. And like, when you're out of position even a little bit with a fighter like like Figgy, who's who's either in your face or he's like quick enough, explosive enough, um, and aggressive enough that if you're at, you don't want to be out of position with him you just don't and i would have liked to see a little more disciplined positioning and you could say well him being loose and having fun is what what really really helped him improve well i think you saw the difference between figueredo moreno was who was a little bit tighter during those very close rounds when it counted and i as much as i want to give it to moreno i think you got to give figgy the nod in in, in those circumstances yeah it seemed like moreno was much more willing to brawl whereas Figueredo actually did want to brawl with him, but like he must have trained and his corner must have been screaming at him to like pull out of that brawl and stay disciplined. And I think that is part of what made that super tight fight go for Figueredo. And another thing I noticed was, you know, in watching it and thinking about it and thinking about their previous two fights, it looked like Figueredo's team realized Moreno has a really good jab and he's going to hit Figueredo a lot with that jab. And that's just a given. So you just have to accept that he's going to jab you. You're going to eat some of that. But because you know he's going to rely so much on that jab, that jab 
becomes predictable. No matter all the little feints that he does and kind of like different looks he gives, you know the jab is going to come first. He's going to gauge his range with the jab, come in with the jab, counter with the jab. Everything's going to be built off the jab. That's a great thing, but that's also the weakness because now you know what's going to come. So then what did Figueredo do? He jabbed the jabber. He countered the jab with his rights. He kicked the jabber. He did all the MMA things you're supposed to do against the jab. And then he shot in some takedowns as well against the jab. So I think that is another difference, this fight, that helped him get the nod. And even then, it was super close, right? That's how good Moreno is, is I saw Figueredo making more adjustments for this fight than Moreno did. And even though he made more adjustments, it was still that close. But I think that's also part of it was he knew the jab was coming and he tailored a plan around what to do when the jab comes. Well, that's outstanding analysis, Sammy, because uh, uh, that, that's what Figueredo did do. He came with that cross counter where he took it like a, an arcing approach, an overhand on that inside slip of the jab to find that right hand that dropped him. He, he ate a jab um, and landed a right hand. He split and slipped and simultaneously countered uh, Moreno's jab. And then whenever uh, Moreno was heavy on that lead foot, he would hit that, that calf kick. And he was able to, to make those reads, implement that strategy, and it, it worked for him. And it kept, it kept the rounds close throughout the fight. And it also sort of uh, – it, it, it didn't allow him – it didn't allow Moreno to get that much traction. And you know when Moreno is able to find his rhythm, he's a fucking problem. So if you can get him sort of slipping and sliding all over the place or running into shots as opposed to slipping and ripping, then then you can throw off his timing. You can keep him from getting traction. You can fuck up his rhythm. And when you do that, he was able to sneak some rounds um, and solidify some rounds, showing just an immense improvement and uh, like tactical awareness that I think he was lacking in, in earlier in like the, the, the two previous fights. Remember in the last fight, Figueredo got dropped by a jab. That doesn't mean that this fight, Figueredo's chin got better. It means that he wore those jabs better this fight because he knew the jabs were coming this time around, right? If you know the punch is coming and you see the punch coming, even when you get hit, you could take it a lot better. Whereas the second fight, he didn't see those jabs. And that's why he got rocked even worse. Oh, absolutely. It's the ones you don't see that do the, the, the those are the ones that trip you up, right? Those are the ones that are going to hurt you. When you have, that's why I always preach pocket presence. Moreno had the better pocket presence. He did, but he also like lunged into stuff and yes. he would whip. The, and Moreno's got a beautiful left hook, and he was landing it a lot. But sometimes, whenever he would miss it, he would throw himself out of position. And there were a few times where I was thinking, if this were Pride and Figgy just punted his fucking head, like he's out of here in the first, like the, the second round. <laughs> um, but uh, that being that being illegal. Um, he, he wasn't made to pay for some of those some of those missteps and overcommitment to to shop, punching himself out of position. If you love the Southpaw Project, please support us and help us get paid for our labor by financially supporting us on Patreon. It'll help us supplement the cost of running this project, the incredible time and energy we put into it seven days a week, and you'll be giving us some breathing room. Not only to juggle Southpaw with our day jobs, but also to expand Southpaw into other areas. Show your Southpaw solidarity by supporting us at patreon.com 
slash southlawpod. Now let's preview Hermanson versus Strickland. Hermanson in his last outing beat Edmund Shabazian and had a really close fight with Marvin Vettori before that one, in which he ended up losing by decision. His opponent, Sean Strickland, is riding a five-fight win streak, last beating Uriah Hall. Now I have to mention, Strickland was a member of a neo-Nazi group in his youth, and it still shows. But there's plenty of people in MMA with his same beliefs who've never been in a Nazi group, so the whole culture is pretty bad. I just wanted to put that disclaimer in there because sometimes people want to know how they should feel morally about people. (laughs) And it's like, Sean Strickland is becoming very, very famous these days as somebody you don't want to root for. But with that out of the way, we have to be professional about this. Let's analyze this fight from just a technical perspective. Jason, what is Hermanson's path to victory? Uh, Well, he's strong and tough, right? Hermanson is definitely strong and tough. And it's going to behoove him to get the fight to the floor. But I'll be honest with you. I mean, it it seems to have slowed a bit since his fight with Marvin Torrey. And uh, I'm trying to keep the politics out of it. But for for humanity's sake, I'm definitely pulling for him. (laughs) But short of a submission, I I just don't see a path to victory for him. Uh, But but again, if if there's any sort of balance to the universe, um, I really fucking hope I'm wrong. Um, but, But Submission is going to be the, the most expedient way um, for Hermanson. But I didn't like I didn't like how badly Shabazzian was piecing him up with the jab in a really calm one-two, one right? Yes. Even from the pocket. And um, like that's Strickland's bread and butter. But he is a, a fighter who brings a five-fight win streak, volume striking, you know, as well as antisocial personality disorder. But I think that sort of psychopathy and brain train being off track helps him in the pocket helps him stand steadfast strike with volume and accuracy rarely punching himself out of position never gassing and like recently he's chewed up opponents with a mix of like i don't know fucking striking and sadism and that's (laughs) that's basically what it just stands in your face and and hopes to hurt you um you know having no misgivings about like um human suffering or, <laughs> or, or any other or his own suffering none none whatsoever right so that sort of gives him that all bets are off approach and he hasn't lost since what uh the zaleski de santos in what 2018 or 2017 and that was back at that was back when he was cutting the welterweight so i don't see her um having the wrestling chops to get stricken to the ground i just don't um like hermanson is strong from like a body lock position, but he doesn't have, he doesn't get, get low um, and blast through stuff. Like I said, he seems to have slowed down a bit from, from the Marvin Vittori fight. And as much as I would love to see him uh, shred Strickland's ACL, I, I see Strickland just chipping away at, at Hermanson's gray matter in the pocket with ones and twos, ones and twos over and over and over. Let me ask you something technical about Sean Strickland. He has a very, at least to my eyes, a very unusual stance because he's very upright. There's like almost no hinge to his legs, right? Like they want a boxing, you want to find kind of this like long stance and you want to sit down into it. I think even if you've trained only Muay Thai, you stand more upright, but like not stiff legged like Sean Strickland. Sean Strickland 
looks like uh, that old school BJ Penn fight when he was fighting like Frankie Edgar the last time. Where oh, yeah. I remember, he was standing yeah. straight upright, right? That is Sean Strickland's stance, except it works for him. He's the only fighter I know of in MMA who could stand that upright, to your point, move in the pocket, throw great one-twos, hit with power, and even that upright, he could defend takedowns. And no, no, right? no one's made him pay for that. Yeah, and I said Uriah Hall is a real good kicker. He's going to chew up his. I was wrong. <laughs> um, Christoph Jocko couldn't do anything. Um, Brendan Allen, uh, and I forget who else he fought before them. Um, no, no one really of note that I can think of. But like he, you think that there's a relatively easy recipe to to beating him, but but Strickland, huh, man, he's he's a tough out and. You would think that leg kicks and wrestling would be sort of be his kryptonite, but when he's when he's just he almost looks like he's 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 calmly and passively just just chipping away at ones and twos and ones and twos. And when you think you you come back and counter with something, he eats it and continues to walk you down. He he doesn't put himself out of position. Um, and for a guy that doesn't hit exceptionally exceptionally hard. People don't seem to counter him very well. You know, it, uh, I, I certainly think the the strength of schedule probably favors Hermanson because I mean he's had what Vittori, Shabazi, and Gastelum, uh, Cannoneer, uh, Jacare. Like these, these are some, some tough guys he's been in there with. And not that Brandon Allen's any slouch, but I think you know Uriah Hall has always been hit or miss. Um, I don't think all that much of Jaco. Um, and, um, you know, if I'm putting money down on somebody, you know, it's, it's going to be, it's going to be Strickland. I think the key will be if Hermanson can fight him without backing up. If he can keep the center and keep his space and not get on the back foot, then he has a really good shot of doing everything, whether it's landing punches taking him down or just dictating more of the fight. But if he keeps backing up, like Giga Chikaze is a great example of what happens when you keep backing up, right? Hermanson cannot let that happen. Chikaze did a lot better when he stopped backing up, except he was too tired by then, right? So I think Hermanson needs to do the same thing. Be willing to even take some shots because to your point, Strickland hits hard, but not like really hard where he'll knock you out with just, you know, one or two strikes. He's going to have to TKO you with a bunch of shots, right? So you're going to have to eat some, and Hermanson eats them well. I'm assuming that's what his team is preparing for, to stay in that pocket, not back up, and try to dictate the fight that way. Yeah, well, Hermanson is he's like one of those like heavy-boned guys. He's not a smooth puncher, but he's he, he can crack a little bit. He's not a smooth kicker, but like, he can crack. He, I think he's like heavy-boned and, and has some pop. What I don't quite understand is, and I guess this is a thing in MMA where they think footwork means giving ground, right? You can slip and pivot, like that's still considered footwork and it's not backing straight out. And I, I almost think camps tend to, it looks like they sparred on a fucking football field, man. Like where they, like, there's just so much room for you to continue to move. Like don't these guys use a cage or do they just think it looks cool and they just have it to eat up some fucking square footage? Like, you want to be able to to slip and, and post and pivot and create some angles and score off those angles, and it should be second nature to a fighter. But it's 
it's it's relatively rare in MMA. Everything is giving this ground with – even if you're doing stance shifts straight backwards, you're still moving straight backwards. And I don't see the – we'll call it – I don't know what the term would be. We'll call it angular prowess that you would see more so in boxing. And, yeah, I get they're different disciplines. But sometimes that footwork and under understanding of those angles um, are, are beneficial in mixed martial arts as an aspect of fighting. And I don't know who the fuck is watching sparring footage or sparring over the course of a fight camp and saying, yeah, you moving straight backwards in a group of 20 other guys in the mat. Yeah, that, that looks really good. And that's going to really help us come fucking fight time. So put yourself in a cage, work some, I guess you've got to, you've got to recognize it. You've got to practice it. You've got to drill it. You've got to own it um, under duress. You've got to own it in sparring. Um, and then, but I just don't see it being being worked enough, and I'm not sure Hermanson Hermanson is either all forward or all in reverse, and I think that's that you're going to see a lot of him in reverse. I hope I'm wrong because I like I like when Hermanson lets his hands go because you hear like some thuds and some cracks in in the Vittori fight. It was nothing but that, and he could throw a million punches without getting tired. They're not all the best punches, but he doesn't gas out from volume. No. But one of the thing that one thing to consider with Strickland is Strickland's punches are so accurate that he's punching center mass of your fucking head. Like he's hitting you in the nose and the lips on almost every fucking shot. I was going to mention that I think part of the reason why he could maintain that stance is because he has such good vision. Yeah, he is so present in the pocket, and his feet are always underneath him that he's almost never out of position. Even when he throws, like he th- I saw. Um, a replay of one of his fights where he would throw he threw a double uppercut and maybe it was against Allen and he the one that he missed didn't land him out of position which tends to happen in MMA the one he he missed just sort of landed him back into like this walk in stance switching jab that turned into like a, a a left a left straight and he just like kept walking him down imagine him over swinging and like almost falling over like Giga Chikaze did, or even like Brandon Moreno did. I can't imagine Strickland doing that because I haven't seen him do that. He doesn't. And I think I think that really bothers some people. It really, really does. The you know, the Diaz brothers do a similar version of it, like they but not not upright. They're they're leaning um and like their stance is just fucking weird. Um, but they're able to like put straight punches in your face, not fatigue and and not lose position. Um, but if they got the jujitsu chops that if they do get taken down, like they're almost daring you, right? They're almost daring you to take them down. Like, yeah, fuck it. Like, if you want to play that game, we will. Um, but like for Strickland, a guy that seems like one dimensional or two dimensional, however you want to put it, it works for him. It's almost like the lack of the other dimension. All it did was just solidify the dimensions that he does have. Cause he used to be more of a well-rounded fighter. I think him trying not to be so well-rounded and just focusing on those few attributes like you mentioned has actually made him even better because he used to be a guy who used to try to kick a lot, like do full MMA, right? Takedowns, grappling, submissions, all that. He doesn't do that anymore, and he is actually better now. Like, the, the things that he does, whether, whether or not he's motivated just simply to, to, to injure a human being or not consider him himself to have like any worldly worth, so he's not concerned about getting hurt. That makes him better in the pocket. 
I'm telling you, that lack of consideration for himself or humanity, like, he's that guy. So you better find out a way to either problem solve him or pressure him because at, at 185 pounds, his chin is seemingly granite, right? He does. I haven't, I haven't seen him rock since making the move up. And what I say is brain trains off fucking track. So like it isn't like that the startle response or the, the flight response doesn't doesn't trigger in his head if he does get hit with something. His response is to punch you three more times. And if you need to reset, regroup, and refocus, when his brain doesn't need to do that, well, you better have a plan B um, or be able to mix things up with variation and diversity of attack to keep him a little bit off balance. And if you cannot do that, like he's just going to chip away at you and break records for for strikes and in uh, a main event. And he has his own shoulder roll that he does to defend himself, and so he rolls with a lot of those punches too. He does. That's, that's another excellent observation. He does that incredibly well. He sees those punches coming, and even if it appears to hit him, it doesn't hit him flush. It's not whether or not you get hit in this game because you will. It's how you get hit. And when you when you say he's able to roll from those shots, it doesn't mean you're not getting touched. But you're, there's a difference between someone punching through your head and someone just punching off your shoulder or off like rolling with it, and you're sort of floating with that energy, rather than just rather than just eating all that energy and digesting it fucking rather poorly into the brain. Well, all right, I think that's enough for this episode. If you like what you heard, write us a positive review on Apple Podcasts. Tell your friends and chip a few bucks in into our Patreon. With that said, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening, folks.